0: So I've just come Friday. We finished the second month of the two-month course. How many people here sat on that retreat? I know there's a little pod over here and then Victoria over there. Okay, so four people are back. There were more people from our sangha also on the retreat. Um, So I thought tonight we would just do questions and answers, hopefully. And here's, the, here's what I thought about. I thought, what really I was thinking, well, how can I help? It's actually the title of a very good book about service if you've never read it. But um, how, how could I help your practice tonight? What kind of question might you ask or situation might you describe that I might be helpful with? What would you like to know about Buddhism that might be helpful for you? Does that make sense? Okay. So I want you to think about it. And you know, you can think a number of different ways what might help the cutting edge of your practice, what might tip you over into total freedom, <laughs> what might. You know where where is there a dilemma or confusion about how to practice? or why we practice something that might be helpful. And I know I have somebody who asked me a question in the break. Where are you? There you are. Okay, so that'll be the first one, Okay, let's start and if you if you could stand, it'll help me. Thank you. I just want to
1: know what is, what is it about the breath that
0: helps us? What is it used for? Okay, so what is it about the breath that's helpful? What's it used for? So you have to stand a little longer. How long have you been practicing? Um, uh huh. And have you been mostly working with the breath or the body, or what have you been doing? Uh-huh, good. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. So, um, partly we're, um, we're working with the both um, archetype and the instructions of the Buddha. So mindfulness of breathing was the practice that the Buddha did after he'd done many practices. Uh, that's the practice he used on the night of his enlightenment. And that's a practice that led to his freedom and illumination. It's also the practice he continued to use for the rest of his life. When he would practice, basically what he would do is go and practice mindfulness of the body and the breathing. And then through that practice, he would get very composed. And he would go through the different jhanas or absorption states and rest in equanimity in a deep, deep state of equanimity. Um, we, use, we use the breath for a number of different reasons. One is because it's um, available as long as we're live. It's changing all the time. You never have the same breath twice. It provides um, um, a bridge in some sense, it's part of the mindfulness of body practice. It's a it's a body practice, the breath, and the body and the breath then become this uh, means to collect or gather or compose oneself. And as I say in the instructions, which I usually say almost every week, it's about bringing body and mind together. And so, generally, we come from a very fragmented plate. We tend to live in our minds, or tend to live in in um, um, we don't tend to live in the present moment. The breath is always happening in the present moment. The body sensations are only happening in the present moment. Try to be aware of what your body felt like last week. You know, it, you can't quite do it. Try to be aware of what your body's going to feel like next week. You can't do it. Now, try to feel what your body's like right now. The body and the breathing become a doorway to the present. And so the second part of your question, it's not, you didn't actually say it, but it's implied, which is, well, why is that important? What does that do if we can get present here? So if we can start to get present here, we can start to come out of the world of our discursive mind, our analytic mind, our uh, ruminative mind, the mind of, of rumination and start to have more access to um, our innate capacities which reveal themselves or show themselves or display themselves or express themselves in the present moment. And I'm talking about our capacity, the capacities of our intelligence, uh, the capacities of our creativity, the capacity, our synthetic capacity, the capacity to understand and make sense of experience. So it leads to a deeper understanding and more sense of uh, of, um, presence and maturity. And then also it... um, um, it provides a refuge, The present moment provides a refuge from the um, delusion of our minds, from the confusion of our minds, from, from the judgments of our minds, from the beliefs uh, you know, that there's something wrong with us, or we should be better or different, or oh, we did something so bad before, or we're never going to get to where we want to be, and all the anxiety and fear and distrust. And if we can land here, we're okay. We can actually be okay. Now, no, let me say it a little better. We actually are okay right here. And it's the only place where we're gonna be okay. We're never okay in the future, right? It's, 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 it's a gap. And the past also is a gap in that way. We'll never, we'll never have a perfect past. Everybody got that? <laughs> it was a mess, but it's gone. It's not. It doesn't have to define who we are. Even though we can use the knowledge of the past. Oh, wait. Hold on a second.
2: <laughs>
0: no, no. There's one Dharma teacher who answers the phone during Dharma talks, and of course, he's totally free, right? Uh, Stop ringing. They hung up. Somebody shut it off quickly. <laughs> um, where was I? <laughs> it's true. Ajahn Jimnian, who is this incredible Thai monk who's been practicing since he was five years old and was amazing when he was five, let alone now he's 65 or at least. And he's amazing. And he'll be sitting there and he's giving his Dharma talk you know, in Thai and there's a translator and all of a sudden you hear the phone ring and he starts fishing around in his robes and he pulls out and he talks and in in Thai he tells somebody, oh, I can't talk now, I'm giving a Dharma talk and he hangs up. (laughs) Total freedom, you know, no problem. When when I start answering the phone during the Dharma talk, you know that I've gone to Nirvana. (laughs) So, until then... (laughs) It's good to stay present, here and now. Does that give you a little picture? There's a little more to it, I'll say. Remember I said the Buddha practiced mindfulness of breathing. Um, um, there is the teaching in, in the, 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 the teachings of the Buddha have what's called anapanasati, or mindfulness of breath. And those teachings, he describes 16 different stages of breath meditation leading all the way to awakening and 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 a lot of it is first ga- is first learning how to be aware of the breath sensitive to something that's basically not so interesting like if i if 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 we all if i said here i want you to really pay attention and i put a really good movie on you could do you can pretty much do it you can kind of forget about your life you know how mo- a good movie is like that you forget about the past you're really here oh, you're not even thinking about here, you're so here, you're so really present, you're not thinking about the future, you're really watching the movie, you're there, and then the movie ends, and there's some kind of feeling of, a good feeling, even if it's like a hard movie to watch, there's something about that level of attention. Or if you're making love with the person you love the most in your whole life in the world, and it's just perfect. I mean, even if it's not perfect, you're mostly not in the future, right? You're not thinking about next week, what am I going to do at work? You're not thinking about what happened to you when you were 12 years old, generally. You know, you're really there. So there's a certain kind of pleasure and satisfaction in being whole, in being complete in the present moment. And it's easier to do it when you're making love or you're watching a movie than being with the breath. The breath can be a little boring. (laughs) I mean, it's just the breath, right? You know, what's the big deal? But if you can learn how to stay present with something that's so... Actually, a better word than boring is simple. It's very simple, the breath. If you can learn to stay present with that simplicity... Two things happen. You build a great deal of power of mindfulness and samadhi, of collectedness. And also, the breath will reveal its magic to you. And it's magical. And it's magical because when you really get present with the breath, it can reveal the whole Dharma. right? Those 16 steps all the way to Nibbana. Now, it's also magical because when you really get present with the breath, it will bring certain states of consciousness which are really um, beautiful, beautiful states of mind. Rapture, pleasure, happiness, joy, equanimity. These are some of the beautiful states of mind that come with samadhi or collectedness. The truth is, if we can get present with anything in this way, to this degree, it will reveal its mystery and its beauty. Because it's not just the breath. What's what's beautiful, what's amazing in life is here all the time. We're often not here. We're dispersed. We're fragmented. We're in the past. We're in the future. We're worried about this. We have a lot of self-concern about that or you know what, how we're seen, or what we think, or what people think of us, and we're not relaxed. We're not here, and the breath has the possibility of teaching us a tremendous amount about presence, about being present, and then the fruit of being present. So it's a really good question to ask about the breath, because that practice can take you from the beginning of your practice all the way to the end of your practice. And as the Buddha did, even beyond, he continued to practice with mindfulness of breathing. And I I, I like it very much, mindfulness of breathing, but I also want to say it's not the only practice. There's other parts to the practice that are also very important.
2: Okay.
1: So, uh, following up on that, uh, Pajan Brahm, I don't know if you've read... A little bit. Yeah. He's
2: pretty strong on starting with the breath is a big mistake. Uh huh.
1: He's wrong.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I should just toss the book. No, don't toss the book. I think I get my money <laughs> so Ajahn Brahm,
0: let me just say who Ajahn Brahm is. Ajahn Brahm is a, I think he's Australian original. Not English, but he's in Australia. English. He's in Australia. He's a monk. He does a lot of breath practice. <laughs> He's very keen on jhana or absorption, the deep, deep states of concentration. And he has his own style of practice, which works totally. totally. He's not wrong in that way. He's wrong into saying there's only one way. And he's, one of the, he's somebody who tends to say, this is the real way. Everything else is not exactly the real way. Uh-huh.
1: For a long, you
2: know, okay, I haven't felt
1: like I've made a lot of progress with it because there's a part of the
0: breath that I just don't want to have anything to do with. Uh huh, okay,
1: sort of, you know, deep
0: yeah, deep, yeah, you
2: know, which I have to talk about.
1: But his thing is about you start by just letting go of different aspects of what's going on in the mind, you start by letting go of thoughts of the past and the future, and then when you nail that, you start letting go of the discursive thought and, mm-hmm. and beyond. And I just could you talk about pros and cons of that approach versus. There's, there's not
0: pros and cons. There's what works for you, right? There are many many different techniques of meditation. So I'm going to repeat what you said. Ajahn, Ch- Ajahn Brahm said, "I'll oh, start with just letting go of the past and future, then letting go of discursive thought." Um, that's great. If that works for you, do that. If the breath doesn't work for you, don't, you know, make your effort, See what. give something a chance, see if it works for you, and then if it doesn't work, find another practice. The Buddha gave 40 different ways to concentrate alone, right? And then there's many different Vipassana techniques that will teach you how to be mindful. If the breath doesn't work, oh, just work with going through your body, being mindful of the sensations of the body. This is... Um, uh, comes from the Burmese tradition of Uba Kin and also taught by Goenka Ji. And this is when I've practiced this, a very powerful Vipassana practice, where you just move your awareness through the body, feeling the sensations and every part of the body. And you, it's called sweeping. You sweep the body from top to bottom, bottom to top, 16 hours a day. And you do that for a few days, that'll show you something. That'll teach you something about impermanence very quickly, very powerful. And it's a very powerful samadhi practice also. Or um, um, another way to practice, let's say, if, if the breath doesn't work for you, start with sound. Right. Everybody shut your eyes for a moment. Just shut your eyes. You don't have to sit formally. Relax. And just start being mindful of sound. Really, it's mindful of hearing. And notice how the sounds just come. You don't have to go out to them, let them come to you. And then notice how they change and fade. And it'll be quieter sometimes. Then other sounds will come. Just be mindful of hearing right now, and if it, even if it's silent, be mindful of that. Now from here, just like you've been mindful of sound, you've been listening to the sound, listen to your body. In other words, feel your body with this kind of openness of awareness. Let your body sensations come to you like the sounds come to you. one more piece as you listen to the body or feel the body in this open way like we're listening to the sounds being mindful of the sounds be mindful of the body breathing or listen to the body breathing the simple sensations of the breath feel that Does that give you another picture of a different way into the breath even? Right? I'm just giving a few, but um, this is one of the important parts of practice is come practice, try things, work with it for a while, you know, a day or month or year or five years, and then see if what, what works and what doesn't work for you. And then, if something doesn't work, and it'll often can often be very clear early on if something doesn't work, it's not the right practice. There are other practices. Um, um, and then, if you can do a retreat at some time, that's a really good time to explore what works and what doesn't work. And we we really are good, I believe, at customizing people's practice on retreat because we meet with you individually and we can really work with you in that way. All the practices are a way of training the heart and mind, training the heart and mind to stay in the present moment, to see then what is the present moment revealed to us? What does it reveal? Does that help? Okay, okay. Back here, behind CJ. Yes. Yeah, you. If you could stand, please. My question is,
1: if our true nature is open-hearted compassionate, uh-huh. and
0: compassionate, then why is it so hard to access? And okay, let me just repeat the first part. If our true nature is loving and compassionate and equanimous, why is that hard, so hard to access? right So, so also the second part was that the hindrances, desire and aversion and sleepiness and all these things, that part of them are also innate and come out of the survival instinct. Okay, so good good question, couple things to say. One is um, and you, you, you said it, I don't think people heard you so much, but you said it that um, our true nature or what's Uh, what's real gets covered over by our conditioning. And it it gets covered over, it seems to be like that it's part of the human development. That there is this innate truth of who we are, what we are. And that seems to get obscured by the development of the human ego and the body and human maturation through, it's part of our ordinary or conventional development we could say we don't lose touch with it totally but we lose touch with a lot of it it's like we don't really know ourselves to be love and compassion and joy and equanimity and wisdom and mostly we end up identified with some small sense of self that's based on fear and anxiety and pain and hurt and some sense of deficiency okay And then it seems like the second part of our development is to start to see through that confusion. And that that seems like that is the archetypal pattern for most human beings, including the Buddha, right? Who, Who had this great life and, you know, rich life and everything he wanted supposedly and still had that existential angst. It wasn't enough. It wasn't okay and he went, the, he went and did the second piece of work. He didn't just develop into kind of a functional human being, but then from there he developed further. And that possibility is available for each and every one of us. And in some sense is our task, is to see where does the human development go to? What is the, what is the potential of the human heart and mind? And in Buddhism it's, it's actually limitless. It's limitless the potential for us, and we see it at times in certain people. The Dalai Lama is surely a great example, or you know somebody like Martin Luther King, or An San Suu Kyi in in uh, uh, Burma, or you know people who you see they transcend the usual self concern. And, and and when you're around a person like that or you see a person like that act in the world, it's inspiring it's inspiring because it resonates something that is already inside of us That it'll, it reverberates with what's already here um, so it seems to me and this is just surmising or you know, thinking aloud with you, that it's a kind of a natural part of human development for whatever reason and um, you know, I guess traditionally in Buddha they would just say karma. It's karma. And part of our karma is ignorance. And ignorance is ignoring what's true. We ignore what's true. And that's the way our minds have been molded or shaped. So we don't see what's actually most true. And then part of what mindfulness does is start to free the mind of the bounds of that shape so that the mind becomes bright and luminous and aware and penetrating to see the nature of things and to see our own nature. Now the hindrances, what's traditionally called the hindrances in Buddhism, are five. There are five traditional hindrances. Really they're categories of certain energies that are natural, as you said. right? Desire, wanting, aversion, not wanting, those are the first two. Sleepiness or dullness or um, um, uh, uh, sinking mind, and then uh, restlessness or agitation uh, are the the next two, and then the last one's called skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt. And um, and the example you gave was on the out breath. Then there's the desire for the in breath. I would be very careful here. Uh, the word desire, tanha in, um, in Buddhism is actually a better translation than desire would be thirst. And it's like when there's this thirst that can never be satisfied. That's the kind of desire that's desire uh, that's considered a hindrance. So, you know the desire to breathe is—that's uh, not considered a bad thing, that's, and and um, as you said, it's instinctual. You know, beings want to live. That—that's not a bad thing. That's that's a, a you know a wholesome desire. You know, there are other desires that we think will fill the hole or the lack or the sense of deficiency we have, and those desires we want to pay attention to. And we want to pay attention to them mostly because they don't work. And yet we keep doing the same thing. And you see it in its most extreme form in addiction, whether it's drug addiction or alcohol or food or sex or whatever it might be, um, that, that we keep thinking will make us feel okay, but doesn't actually do the job. And so that's when desire becomes suffering and leads to more suffering. Um... Um, I I really feel very fondly towards the hindrances myself. I, I don't like the word hindrance. I think it it does it does disservice to those energies. I th- I do think these are very normal energies. Of the, and and that as we learn to befriend those energies and recognize those energies, that those energy, that that capacity really becomes the building block for deeper mindfulness. When we can see, if we can land in those energies, even the energy of desire, it's an amazing thing to have strong desire and sit right in the middle of it and not have to repress it and not have to act on it. Now that's a certain kind of power that comes with mindfulness practice. And, and then we have access to that powerful energy. And we want that. We want all of our energy. All of our life's energy, including the energy of desire and the energy of aversion and all the energies that may come, we don't want to have to be afraid of anything. If we're afraid of it, we're still in the thrall of it. If we're afraid of it, we're still at the mercy of it in some way. So in, in the Buddhist text, the hindrances come in the form of Mara. Do you know who Mara is? Mara is the, uh, technically the lord of death and is the, the anti-Buddha like they have the Antichrist in Christianity they have the anti-Buddha in Buddhism I don't know what the numbers are exactly but, <laughs> but, but the anti-Buddha here's the difference though the anti-Buddha is actually a friend of the Buddhas in other words Mara comes, and what the Bu- the Buddha doesn't say doesn't try to kill Mara. The Buddha doesn't try to hurt Mara. The way the Buddha deals with Mara when Mara comes is the Buddha says, "I see you, Mara," and that's that's all the Buddha. He's mindful of Mara, and mind and Mara comes in all these different disguises and guises and often I think of him like a kid on Halloween, you know, and the kid comes with in their costume and they go ah! And you go oh, hi Jimmy and the kid goes, oh, you know and then the kid goes, slinks away right? That's what happens to Mara. The Buddha sees Mara and Mara says, oh, the blessed one has seen me and he slinks away and so sometimes it works like that. That's nice when that happens. Sometimes it actually stays with us a long time. The desire can stay a long time. The aversion or fear of things or anger about things can stay a long time. But our practice is to find our capacity to stay present in what's actually here and not have to be afraid of Mara. Even if Mara stays a long time. So at a certain point, Mara can come and it's just not even a problem. I mean, you know, you have a cranky mind some days. It's just crankiness. You don't have to identify with Mara. And then you're free of Mara. You don't have to get rid of Mara either. So, so in that sense, there's not really a split between the hindrances in true nature, they're all part of the picture. they are different parts of the picture. And the analogy that's used is like water. The surface of the water can be choppy and waves and crashing, and there's all kinds of seaweed in the water, and there's those, you know, the things from the six packs The plastic is in the water, and all this, you know, pollution is in the water. But as you go down to the bottom, as you go down to where it's quiet and still that's more the metaphor for our true nature that there's a stillness in here there's a quiet that's here there's something that doesn't need anything that's here but it's all water it's all water and that's the good news I think that's really the good news well, nope, it's, it, the, the phrase that's used in Buddhism is no part left out no part left out If we can be present on the surface in the chop, and we can be present down at the bottom where it's totally still and quiet. Okay, so let's stop there a second. Let me just because let me ask you a question. Are, are you talking about everyday practice? Yes. Okay. Right. So, and how much of your not being able to be mindful of the breath has to do with there's a lot happening in your mind and you're agitated, or you know there's a lot going on in your life and that and you're kind of uh, regurgitating it a bit and I don't mean that in a bad way I mean that's just what your mind's doing is that okay tell me (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah Right. So so here's the key thing. Here or there's a few key things. One is don't judge your meditation. No, I mean I mean it actually quite seriously, and that's a hard thing to do. You can evaluate your meditation, but don't judge it. Like, you know, you can say, Oh, this was a good meditation or this wasn't so good. But mostly we say, Oh, This was a bad meditation, and I'm a bad meditator. Except for those few times when we say, oh, this is great, and now I'm a good meditator. (laughs) Did I tell you my story about being on retreat when I was sitting on retreat? I was sitting on retreat for a month, and I had this dharma talk come to me. This is part of the suffering of being a dharma teacher,
2: <laughs> I, You know,
0: something. You know, you think of when you're on retreat, you think of your family or your friends or your work. Or you, I think about my work. All of a sudden, this dharma talk comes, and and I'm trying to be mindful of the breath, and I can't find the breath because this dharma talk is coming, and I think oh, I should go write it down. And I'm trying to stay with the breath, but the but it was a it was a Dharma talk that came in a different voice. Did I do this here one time? I didn't do it. So it, it didn't come in my voice. It was a weird thing. And it came something like this. Okay, if I can do it, let's see. <laughs> I was sitting
2: there. <laughs> I was.
0: I was sitting there. I was meditating. I was meditating. I was doing I was doing fine. I'm being with the breath. Being with the breath. Being with the in-breath. Being with the out-breath. I was meditating and I was and then all of a sudden it came down on me I mean it came down strong on me
2: it came
0: down heavy on me it grabbed me grabbed me it grabbed me and it took me
2: it took me and it grabbed me and it held me
0: and I knew it I said it I said whoa whoa because all of a sudden I was saying I'm a good meditator I'm being with the God. And I realized it had me.
2: <laughs>
0: that it was that old identity. That I and me and my identity. And my identity was a good meditator. I was feeling good.
2: I was
0: meditating the breath. And I was a good meditator. And then it happened that I confined the breath. And I lost the breath. And I said, shit. Where the hell is that? Where is that? I know it's about the breath. Why why can't I find it now? And then and then it came and it grabbed me again and it took me again and it held me and it squeezed me and it said, You're a bad meditator. (laughs) And it was that Identity, that I and me and my identity. That was the problem. It's, it's a true story. <laughs> so, so one of the things that happens is we begin to identify with our meditation. We, we begin to value ourselves based on what happened in our meditation. And we lose seeing from the big picture that even if we're sitting there, we're just downloading the day, right? Just downloading the day, going, you know, cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. You're still sitting there, and that's good. And, and, And so one other piece that's helpful is, first of all, see, notice if you're valuing yourself based on your meditation, because that's dukkha. This dukkha is suffering, for those of you who don't know. That's dukkha. In fact, basing your value on anything you do is dukkha. In, in Buddhism, your value is not based on what you do. Your value, as my friend here said, is innate. Your true nature is innate. Your karma is based on what you do. I don't, It's not exactly a free ride either. I want to be careful. But your value is not based on what you do and the um, and if you if you practice for a lifetime you will have great meditations and horrible meditations and meditations when you're really present meditations when you wonder where the hell was I for the last 45 minutes and that's just part of the picture and if you don't base your value on what happens there's a lot of freedom then and the meditative process can function it can function and then things will happen you know we don't even know what's going to happen because we're basing our opinion on what we think should happen which already is going to limit our meditation somewhat. so you know partly I you know one of the arts or skills of meditation is learning when to make what kind of effort and when to let go. And both are important. And so sometimes it's important to make some effort, to be more present, to get to the breath. Sometimes it's be a bump on the log. Just be a bump on the log. Whatever happens, it's fine. And to know how to practice that way is really helpful. I give you a little... And then, again, daily life practice is you know, mostly we tell people, if you just sit, that's good. If you just sit, that's good. If you're feeling like you want a little more inspiration, come to a day long, do a day long, do a couple day retreat or a week retreat. It'll support and it'll move, move the meditation forward. It's like anything. If you want to become a really good bike rider, you know, if you ride a half an hour every day, that'll do one thing. If you ride for a whole day and ride 75 miles, that's another thing. If you're a dancer, if you're doing yoga, you know, if you do a little bit every day, that's one thing. But if you go do a little yoga retreat, that moves your practice forward. And it's important to recognize the cycles and to know how to go with them or to change them when you want. Okay? Shem um, So I heard
1: you
2: say that uh, if
0: you're, if you're here to feel good and you're in the long place.
1: And Did I say that? Something along that line okay. in this book, um, then, Bones, then, Flesh, then Flesh,
0: Then Bones. Yeah. It's a great
2: book. It
1: says, um, if you like sweet and easy living, then this is a book for you. <laughs> uh uh-huh. Uh huh. Can I still read it Uh-huh. But so
2: I don't know,
0: just talk about that? Okay, so the question is that some uh, sometime I said um, if if you want to feel good this is not the right practice for you. I was talking just to you. <laughs> 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 no, I'm kidding.
2: <laughs>
0: um you know, I'm, I can't remember what context I said that in, but I but it's in that I could maybe say it in this sense that um, um, there are parts of practice that are actually very much about feeling good, and about learning to find a sense of well being in ourselves in a very innate way, and just that that's what's here, and that that's part of our birthright is. Uh, a sense of well-being, but in the process of finding, and and we could say the Buddha realized that totally, and completely. In fact, a lot of times he talks about, you know, uh, um, nirvana as the highest happiness. That there's worldly happiness, happiness, and then there's there's kind of otherworldly happiness, or he calls it mundane happiness and super mundane in the text. That there's a happiness that's beyond worldly pleasure, and meditation will show you that at a certain point. But the complete happiness, rarely will somebody find that without being willing to sit through a lot of things that are unpleasant. Because there's a, a certain amount of our conditioning, and a certain amount of our we 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 have to be able to sit with suffering remember the, the four noble truths which are a great understand, simple understanding of the path is that there's suffering there's a cause to suffering there's freedom from suffering and there's a path and, and you can sometimes sit in your meditation and just see the suffering and then see well what, what's the cause where is the friction where is what am I not accepting what am I not allowing or being with or, or coming into alignment with and then as that happens to begin to see the suffering released and then the path is really all the skillful means that allows that to happen. And sooner or later, let's put it this way, you, it, it's just not the way the world works that we can always be happy in that way that you were talking about having everything pleasant. You know, you can do your best to put all your ducks in order. You get the right relationship and the right you know, job and the right house and get the right food and the right... Whatever, a computer, and the right Palm Pilot, and the right car, and the right this, and the right that and, that, and you know, something changes. You know, your Palm Pilot goes on a fritz, and your computer falls, and then your car gets smashed by somebody, and your partner leaves you, and your job is being phased out, and it's a whole different world. And so if we're only relying on feeling good, that's, that's not a solid ground. If we can only feel good when we're feeling good, or things are pleasant, that's not solid ground. But if we can find our freedom in the changing conditions of, of life, the ordinary, totally nobody's fault, changing conditions of life, then that's a freedom we can count on. So that's a little more the context, I believe, of what I was alluding to. So let's sit together for a minute before we end. Thank you for your questions. Nice to hear what you're thinking about. the blessing of our being here together, practicing together, and the merit of our practice. May it go out in every direction, touching beings in every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings, and of course please include yourself when we say all beings, may all beings be free from suffering free from war, free from fear, free from division, free from hatred, free from racism or sexism or all the isms, all the confusion, free from all the ignorance, the greed. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken, may we discover, realize, see, understand, know completely our true nature, our Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion, of love and loving kindness, of happiness and joy and equanimity. May all beings be free. Just the last announcement. We have a bowl for... um, Donations for San Francisco Insight. We ask for a $10 donation or whatever you might be able to afford. Um, The monies that you offer to San Francisco Insight go to pay for the room and the church and various programs, um, including then San Francisco Insight makes an offering to the teacher. Thank you for your generosity, and please take good care. I'll see you all next week. Be well.